Please turn with me to Paul's letter to the Philippians, taking just a um, brief break from Paul's letter to the Romans, and we're going to look at uh, a few verses uh, actually throughout this letter. And as you're turning there, uh, let, let me just say this as we, as we begin I must confess to you that there is always a measure of hesitation that I have on this Sunday. And here's why. My hesitation uh, has not at all to do with my deep-seated, heartfelt conviction that every human life is a gift given by God from the first moments after conception until the last breath by a human being is taken. My hesitation doesn't have to do with that at all. My hesitation has to do with the fact that I I fear being misunderstood and I fear that our church might be misunderstood as it sets aside a Sunday to recognize the sanctity of human life. And my fear is that people will perceive that some sort of political agenda is being advanced here because this issue has become so politicized. And at the core of my being, I want to say to you, I don't believe this is a political issue. I do believe that this is a human issue. Just as the terrible atrocities that have been committed under brutal regimes across the whole of human history were human issues and not political issues. Just as the buying and trading of human beings across the whole of human history is a human issue and not a political issue. This issue of the sanctity of life is connected to those issues because every human being created in the image of God has a worth and a value that is intrinsic, that is conferred upon that human being by God. And I believe it is an obligation that I have as a minister of the gospel and seeking to preach the whole counsel of God to affirm the dignity and worth and the value of every human being. And so if you're here for the first time this morning and, and you're wrestling with this issue and, and you're, you're influenced in your thinking by the politics of the issue, please understand this is not about advancing a political agenda at all. And please give me the opportunity to speak with you about this. If there's, if there's some inclination in your heart to want to leave because you think I'm a fundamentalist Republican... I am not. I am a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, commissioned to proclaim the whole counsel of God, and that includes affirming the dignity and value of every human being. And so with that, what I'd like to do this morning is let Paul's letter to the Philippians answer three questions for us. 
And, and I'm doing it in this way because I want to put this particular issue in a broader context, this particular matter of the sanctity of human life in a broader context. And frankly, I, I want to put, put all of your difficulties, necessities, and distresses in that broader context. I, I want to put the concerns that you have for our culture and for our nation in this broader context. And want to invite you to look with me at Paul's letter to the Philippians to get answers to three questions. Who am I? Who are we? And what is it reasonable for us to expect as we live in the midst of this world? Who am I? Who are we? And what is it reasonable for us to expect as we live in the midst of this world? So let me read these verses and then hopefully answer these questions. Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And then at verse 20 of Philippians chapter 3. But our citizenship is in heaven... And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things, all things to Himself. Let's pray. Lord, in these few minutes, uh, grant us Your presence, grant us Your Spirit, grant us uh, to see who we are individually, who we are together. Grant us to be realistic and hopeful all at the same time as we live in the midst of this world. We pray in your name. Amen. Now, hopefully by the end of these next few minutes, I'll be able to tie all of this together, this this Sunday on which we recognize the sanctity of of human life, of all human lives, Um, and these three questions, who am I? 
who are we and what should we reasonably expect. I, I hope that I can sort of pull this all together by the time we're finished. Uh, but bear with me, and we'll begin just with this first question, who am I? Who am I uh, as I live in the midst of this world and, and as I get up every morning and I read my newspaper uh, and I consider um, any number of things that could cause me real distress, that could cause real heartburn for me? Who am I, really? If someone asks me the question, who are you? If I ask you the question, who are you? How do you answer? Barb and I have uh, some very dear friends in town this weekend. And I'm not going to ask them to stand up or anything because I, I, you'll be able to find them easily enough. I, I don't want to incriminate them as I tell you this story. But if you had been at my house yesterday between 4 and 6 in the afternoon, you would have learned some things about my good friend, Jack. Oops. Because Texas played Kansas yesterday afternoon. And my friend is a graduate of the University of Texas, and he is a longhorn. And you would have, that's because someone said that's a good thing. Okay. And you would have known that he was a Texas longhorn because every call that went in the favor of the University of Texas was a good call, and every call that went in the favor of the University of Kansas was a bad call. And he was animated about it, right? I'm picking on my friend. But one of the ways that he identifies himself is as a Texas longhorn. He was unkind enough to remind me that the University of Michigan was defeated in January of 2005 on a last-second field goal by the University of Texas. He's in my home! And he tells me this. But I'm not upset. What is it that identifies you? Think about it, really. How do you identify yourself? Is it where you went to school? Is it what you do? Is it what you have? Is it what you've achieved? Listen to how the Apostle Paul identifies himself. You go back to the very first verse of this letter to the Philippians and you have an answer to the question, how would the Apostle Paul identify himself? I stumbled onto this. You know, I've said this so many times. The beauty and, and wonder and blessing of what it is that I get to do is that I get to deal with this book, these 66 books, every week. And I get to read people who are a lot smarter than I am and listen to them as, as they make observations about this book. And several years ago when I was preaching through Titus, shortly after we arrived here, I learned this thing that I'm about to share with you. As Paul writes to these Philippians, the first word out of his mouth, the word with which he identifies himself, the word which brought joy and gladness to his heart, is the word slave. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. 
The word in a lot of the translations, the, the original word is translated servants, but the better rendering of that word is slave. Bond servant, bond slave. Now you ask the question, why is that so significant? Why is that so important? Why is that so striking? Well, it's striking because of the people to whom the apostle is writing. He's writing this letter to the Philippians. And here are just a few things that you would want to know about Philippi, about this city to which Paul addresses this letter and and the believers to whom this letter is addressed. The city was built by Philip of of Macedon originally, the father of Alexander the Great. But in the decades before the appearing of Christ, Caesar Augustus rebuilt the city. You remember Octavian who became Caesar Augustus? You remember the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that encompassed the whole known world? You remember Caesar Augustus who commissioned the census by which Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem to register so that Jesus, in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, was born in the city of David, not in an obscure and remote place like Nazareth. Caesar Augustus rebuilt the city, Philippi. And when he rebuilt it, he made it a Roman military outpost. Philippi is in Macedonia. It's at the north end of the Aegean Sea. It's west of Constantinople or Istanbul, the first European city in which the Apostle Paul planted a church. So it is a Roman military outpost in a Macedonian culture. And the citizens of Philippi prized themselves in several things. The principal possession, the thing which they prized above everything else is that they were Roman citizens, which meant that they were free men and not slaves. They could purchase property. You couldn't do that if you were a Macedonian. You couldn't do that if you were a slave. They were freed from all kinds of tax obligations because they were citizens of Philippi. When Paul first first preached the gospel, you can read this in Acts 16, when Paul first preached the gospel about Jesus and about the arrival of the kingdom in Philippi, it created a furor, it created an uprising. And the response of the people to this preaching and the ministry of the Apostle Paul was they were advocating things, they were constraining people to embrace things that Roman citizens don't believe. You see, the first words out of their mouths had to do with their Roman citizenship. It was their badge of honor. And they were free. It meant that they were free. And what's the first word out of the mouth of the Apostle Paul as he addresses these Philippians? I am not a free man. I am a slave. That word would have offended Roman citizens. 
you can check this out. I checked it out again yesterday just to make sure that I was right. If you look at all of Paul's letters from Romans through Titus and Philemon, all of his letters, there are only three letters in the greeting in which he identifies himself in this way as a slave. And those three letters are these, Romans, Philippians, and Titus. And here is the thing that is common to all three. The letter to the Romans is written to whom? The Romans. What do you think the Romans valued? Their freedom. The letter to the Philippians is written to whom? Roman citizens. What did they value? Their freedom. The letter to Titus is written to whom? A Roman citizen. And you hear what Paul is saying? In only those three letters, he uses this word slave to identify himself. And what is he saying to these people? I have an identification that has nothing to do with earthly citizenship. I have an identification that has nothing to do with where I went to college or the success of my basketball team or the failure of my football team. I have an identification that has nothing to do with what I have done, what I have accumulated, who I am in this earthly respect. I have an identification as the bond slave of Jesus Christ. I am owned by another. I am not my own. He uses that word in speaking specifically to free men and women. Not only that, he goes beyond it. He goes beyond it to talk about his credentials. That's what he's doing in Romans or in Philippians chapter 3. He's enumerating all of his credentials. These are all of the things that give me standing, that give me status. We read them. You've heard them read before, most certainly. If anybody was to have confidence in the flesh, I would have more confidence than anybody else. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I had, whatever my credentials were, how do I view them? How do I see them when contrasted with the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things? Look, it isn't that those things are bad. It isn't that those things are wrong. It isn't... Wrong for my good friend to root for the University of Texas, that it would thump the University of Kansas. It's not wrong for me on the last Thursday or the last Saturday in November. It used to be the last Thursday, now it's the last Saturday. It's not wrong for me to want the University of Michigan to thump Ohio State. But 
how do I value these things? And when I stack all of those things up against the surpassing wonder and mystery and value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, what happens to the significance of those things? Paul says, I count them as rubbish. And some of you know, you've heard this passage preached before, some of you know that the word literally, they're polite in the translations, as is very often the case, the word literally means dung. By comparison, Paul views these things as dung. And why does he do that? Between chapter 1 and chapter 3, why does he do that? I'm, I'm a slave. I'm the bondservant of Jesus Christ. I'm not a free man. I am owned by another. I belong to another. And then in chapter 3, these things that used to be credentials, that used to be so valuable, that used to give me my standing, that used to be my identity, why do I view them as dung? Because between chapter 1 and chapter 3, Paul has talked about Jesus. He has talked about Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. What is that? That's slavery. That's serving. That's bowing before another. And who would possibly be constrained to do such a thing? Who could possibly be constrained to say, you are more important than I am. My needs are not first. Yours are first. Jesus Christ. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Although he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be clutched. But he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. And he, the king of glory, you, you it just doesn't fall on us with the force that it would have fallen on the Philippians. He, the King of glory, made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave. The kurios, the Lord, the Supreme One, emptied himself of all of his rights and privileges, all of his status, all of his credentials, and became a slave. It is scandalous, friends. And what is even more scandalous is that Paul would raise the specter of the cross, an instrument of execution which was shameful, and the king of glory, having emptied himself of his resume, of his privilege, of his rights, and taking the form of a slave, goes yet one step further and shames himself, is humiliated and humbled in a Roman cross, 
serving the interests of folks like us, that we might be free. Why does Paul dismiss his credentials? Because he has seen his Savior do the same thing for him. Empty himself. Become a slave. Even to the point of death on a cross. And Paul is encouraging these Philippians to have the same mind among themselves that they see in the Lord Jesus, who was the servant of his father, who emptied himself of his privilege, laid it all aside to fulfill his father's purpose for him to come into the world as the greater Moses, as a deliverer and redeemer, and laid down his life to secure the liberty, the freedom, the blessing of those who were imprisoned in sin and death. Paul most certainly had something else in mind, and I'll just give you the passage. It's Deuteronomy 15, verses 12 through 17. And in Deuteronomy, Paul was a student of the law. He was a scholar of the law. He knew his Old Testament. He most certainly had this passage in mind when he uses this language. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 12 through 17, describe what a slave is to do when a slave finds that he or she is faring well in the home of a master. The provision is made for the release of slaves. Those who by circumstances out of their control have fallen into a condition in which they are dependent upon another for their well-being. Slavery. There's provision made for their release. Who doesn't want freedom? Who doesn't want to go back to his own piece of land? Who doesn't want to have the right to make decisions for himself or herself? There's only one person who doesn't want that freedom. The person who is faring well in the house of the master. Who is blessed. Who is prospering. Who knows freedom without possessing freedom. And in that case, the instruction is for the master to take an awl and a hammer, a mallet, and to take the earlobe of the slave and to drive that awl through the earlobe of the slave into the doorpost of that home. And that communicates to the surrounding community that this slave will remain here forever. Why? Because in the house of that master, that slave has fared well. That slavery is not oppressive. It is not life-denying. It is not death-inducing. It is life-giving and life-enhancing. Folks, take some time this afternoon and think back across the days of your lives and ask yourself the question, have I not fared well in the house of this master, the God of heaven and earth. Is it not a blessed, beautiful, and glorious thing that has no comparison to be owned by one who gave himself 
for me, who gives me forgiveness and cleansing, who gives me the hope of eternal life, a new heaven and a new earth, who promises to be with me and care for me and sustain me and meet all of my needs across all of the days of my life, and then to bring me safely home into his presence. Have I not fared well in the house of this master? And would I not be happy to have my body pierced as a testimony to the world that I am owned by a gracious master? That is what Paul has in mind, all of it, as he uses this word in speaking to the Philippians. He is not his own. He belongs to another. His credentials, his standing mean nothing compared with the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. And he is happy for there to be visible evidence, a mark, a sign that communicates to the whole world that he fares well in the house of his master. Look, I'm convicted by this, okay? When people ask me who I am, do I say first, I am the glad-hearted slave of Jesus Christ, my master. Oh, my name is Mike, but this is who I really am. Who are we? Who are we? Paul uses an interesting word in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. It's the only place in the New Testament this word is used. It's translated citizenship. But the implication of the word, the way you, as you tease out the meaning of the word, it really sort of reads like this. As he writes to the Philippians, he reminds the Philippians that they are an outpost of heaven. Their citizenship is in heaven. Don't be confused by, by, this, uh, by this word heaven. Don't draw the, the mistaken conclusion that your citizenship is in some, some ambiguous, disembodied place. No, no, no. Your citizenship is very much in a real and physical place. Your citizenship is very much in Jesus Christ, who is physically raised from the dead, who is the evidence of the fact that God will reclaim the whole of the material creation and will restore the whole of the creation and liberate it all from its bondage. Your citizenship, Paul is saying, is in Jesus Christ. And by virtue of your union with Jesus Christ, what that makes you Philippians when you are all together, it makes you an outpost of heaven. It makes you an outpost of heaven. That is exactly what Philippi was. It was an outpost of Rome. And Roman citizens in Philippi did what Roman citizens in Rome would do. They embraced the values, the convictions, the habits, the longings, the desires of people in Rome. They were just removed from Rome, bringing all of that with them as they lived in a different culture. You see? Their citizenship is in another place, but they live in a way that is consistent with who and what they are. They are an outpost of heaven, 
I don't know what you think the church is. There are so many things that can be said about what the church is. The bride of Christ, the family of God, the sons and daughters of the living God. But one thing that the church is, is an outpost of heaven, an expression in the midst of the world of the living presence of Jesus Christ, who is the new heaven and the new earth, who is the new creation, and who gives his spirit to his people to convey from his residence the realities of his residence into the midst of this world. You are an outpost of heaven. When people, This is convicting and it's challenging and it's glorious. When people come into this room, when they see the church of Jesus Christ gathered, they should smell something different. They should hear something different. They should see something different, including the way we deal with each other when we screw up. What is it that characterizes the church? The grace of God in Jesus Christ permeating the whole life of the church so that the manner in which we interact with one another and do life together, I think that's the current phrase among the younger folks, the way we do life together is different, including extending forgiveness to one another when we screw up. Church of Jesus Christ isn't perfect. The world isn't perfect. What the world needs to see is that there's a different way to deal with imperfection. You are an outpost of heaven. You are a colony of heaven. And so what should we expect? Because we are different, because we're slaves, because we've been bought with a price, because we belong to another, because our old credentials don't matter, because we have been wed to Jesus and we prosper well in the house of our master. Because we are a different people, an outpost of heaven, what should we expect? We should expect that 25 years ago, Jan Johnson, who is a citizen of that kingdom, who is a slave of that master, would be among a handful of people who would start a crisis pregnancy center in Indian River County. Why? Because the God of heaven and earth is a God who repeatedly in the Psalms and other places says that he cares about the weak, the infirm, the distressed, the frail, and the helpless. We should expect that Mark Parsons would serve as the president of that board for some period of time. We should expect that people from this congregation would volunteer at the Crisis Pregnancy Center. Why? Because they are They're expressions in the midst of this world of greater realities, of a righteousness and a justice and a conviction about the dignity of every human life. And it finds expression in the way that we live. We should expect that Laura McKellar would climb up on the roof of a Habitat for Humanity house and would nail shingles to that roof. We should expect that Ted and Donna Robart would start a ministry to women who have been harmed in varieties of ways and would struggle to figure out how to care for them because each of them is valuable, created in the image of God. We should expect that Jim and Laura Davis 
would be involved with NAMI, the National Association of Mental Health, seeking to get a facility here that can help people in need. We should expect that Mike McAuliffe would work at the Gifford Youth Activity Center seeking to minister to kids without dads and some of them without dads or moms. We should expect that Mike Malone would want to see 150 to 200 wells drilled in Tanzania where people are without water. They don't have water. That's what we should expect. Because King Jesus has made his slaves, his servants, and we have fared well in our master's house, and we are an outpost of heaven, and from this outpost of heaven, the realities of beauty and justice and righteousness and the gospel of Jesus Christ would sound forth and be seen. That's what we should expect. And there's one last thing that we should expect. We should expect, as this all continues, we should expect, long for, pray for, look forward to the day when Jesus Christ will return and transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. We should look forward to the day when every knee will bow And every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when we are transformed, and when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, all of the loose ends get tied up. All of the injustices are addressed. All of the brokennesses are healed forever. I'm a slave. Pray for me that I will have the courage as I live in this community to introduce myself to people whom I've not met before as the slave of Jesus Christ. We are an outpost of heaven. Pray that by the Spirit of God, the realities of Jesus Christ will be communicated to and through us and out into this community even more than they already have been. And as all of that happens, we live with the hope that the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the one true Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thanks be to God.